Poor Things is an awe-striking visual feast that satisfies the eyes, tantalizes the loins, and feeds the soul. That's Christy Puchko of Mashable talking about Poor Things. That's right. I saw it a couple weeks ago. Cannot wait to discuss it. I wanted to wait until it's closer to its release so more of you will see it. So it's coming out December 8th, and uh, it's bonkers. That's all I can tell you. It's fantastic. We're talking about Yorgos Lanthimos' new film. In addition to that, currently available in i think select theaters and it'll be available widespread in netflix soon that's may december that's also some awards bait julia moore natalie portman stars in that the film that won the palm door at the Cannes film festival anatomy of a fall that's currently available in theaters limited release and available on max right now you can watch it albert brooks defending my life which i loved so three movies and one documentary this week here in cinephile and even more to that our wild card is um the author of a terrific new book. Scott Iman is his name, and it's a book about Charlie Chaplin. You're saying to yourself, why do I care about Charlie Chaplin? But you're going to enjoy this interview. It gets see nasty. Yeah, absolutely. We got the salacious details. Charlie Chaplin versus America, when art, sex, and politics collided. As always, thanks for supporting the podcast. Please go to Apple Podcasts, where you can subscribe, rate, and review. And next week on the podcast, Lisa Cortez, who's Oscar-nominated, Emmy-winning producer, director, she made Little Richard, I Am Everything, which is available on Max on Thanksgiving. I reviewed it months ago. Excellent documentary. And you can look forward to Lisa's interview next week. Speaking of Apple Podcasts, I just went and took a quick look, Cody. And I believe this is our 300th episode. The reason I mention is I just went to Cinephile and it says, whatever, the bio for a few minutes says, see all, and then in parentheses, 299 more. So I don't know for certain. I didn't fact check this. Maybe Apple Podcasts is leading us askew, but this may be our 300th podcast. That's impressive, man. I mean, I know I've only been around for, what, half of it? A little less than half? You, yeah. You've been going, man. Like, this is like, that is no small feat. 300 is no joke. I appreciate it, man. We've been together for a year and a half now. Signed up last June, and so it's a weekly episode. If you do the math, yeah, we've been together for at least 75, 80, which has been a great run, and we'll continue more at least up until my contract's up next June. So fingers crossed we keep going. It's funny when you say to somebody 300 episodes, that feels pretty good. What's the number that you say to somebody that stands out? Like if you're talking to your brother and you go, Adnan Burke's a film critic, he goes, ah, whatever. He goes, well, he did Cinephile. What's the number? He goes, wait, he did 500 episodes? He did 1,000 episodes? He did 100 episodes? What's the number that gets someone's attention? I think 200 means you've mm. been around a good amount. Like, I think 100 is just yeah. anyone can do that. It says, I've heard people say it takes like 40 to 50 episodes for a podcast to like find a voice, like yeah. to really figure out what it is. So, I mean, yeah, I'd say 200 is a number. 200 is a good number. We're at 300, so that means we're definitely rolling. Uh, the number one question I'm often asked, people ask me as a film critic, the number one question I always get is, how many movies do you watch a week? And the answer is it varies. They go, oh, be specific. And I'm like, okay, it's two to four. You know, in July, when it's some crappy Marvel movie, I force myself and I pay $97 to go see it. And I'll see one movie streaming or, you know, Lawrence of Arabia, I'll watch. But then award season, like now, four movies I'm cranking out. Next week, we have four movies, five movies. So generally, I'd say two to four movies. That's generally my answer. How many movies I watch a week? The next question often becomes, you know, how much prep goes into it? And I'm like, not a whole lot. They're like, what do you mean? I'm like, I go to the movies. I, I think, do you have a different notebook? I'm like, no, I, I just watch the movie. Do you, do you write notes afterwards? I'm like, no, I just think about the movie and you know, kind of go from there. And Chris sends me a list of uh, some blurbs that he picks out. And we got the cast and that kind of information. And the reason why is someone once asked me, they go, I'd love to be an intern for Cinephile. And I said, if I can help you with the prep work. And I go, there's really only one thing you could do, which came up this past week. Because the third question is, how often do you read other reviews? And the answer is, I used to be a pretty avid reader of reviews. And then something happened. And you're saying, what, you got too good for that? You're arrogant? Your social media? I bet I know. I bet I know. 
Okay, take you a started. Guess. You started feeling yourself stealing stuff. Well, that's part of it too. You're right. So then I said, you know what? If I'm going to see a movie, I don't need to see the reviews. All I'll see is the Rotten Tomatoes. So a Killers of the Fire Moon, I'm going to watch no matter. You signed me up years ago, months ago when he first announced it. So all I saw was 93% Rotten Tomatoes. And I know the critics love it. That's it. I don't need anything more than that. But what I like to do is, to your point, I like to go back and just curious. Hey, was I in line with other people are saying? Do I disagree with what people are saying and go from there? So but for specifically for Killers of the Fire Moon, I had not read the reviews. And I said, okay, let me, last week, let, me, let me get through it. So I start going through my favorite critics. You all know Tiber. I read him every week because I get I subscribe $5 a month to his newsletter. So I'll read his reviews. That's it. But Owen Gliberman, a variety I love, you know, the hometown papers, Globe and Mail, that kind of stuff. Uh, Anne Hornaday, Washington Post, Kirchner's favorite film critic. But there's a great critic named Manola Dargis, New York Times. So the other reason is why have I stopped reading reviews? The paywall. If you go on Rotten Tomatoes, there's all these critics. And if you click on it, it's like, oh, subscribe to the Boston Globe, $1 for the next six months. I'm like, no, I'm not doing that. So if ever I needed an intern, it's for this specific reason. I need passwords to the major newspapers in America right now. And I would need you to print out that review, staple it, and leave it on my desk. That That's that's the only reason I need an intern, Cody. Someone to go, can you just get the paywall for the New York Times, Boston Globe, whatever it is? And wow. just find seven reviews. Ex expensive gig for the intern. So they have to now pay for all these things that you don't want to pay for just so you can have them. I mean, if you really want to make it in the industry, you got to do stuff like that sometimes. Right. That's what I would do. I'm like, do you want to be able to work for me? It's going to cost you. What, how so? Sweat, blood, tears, hard work? No, no, money. It's going passwords. to cost you. Yeah, passwords. <laughs> so I had to hook up uh, my man, Dan Stanzik. I know he's an avid New York Times guy. And I was like, hey, man, I'm trying to read Manola Dargis's review. He's like, yep. Like he sent to me, he's like, yeah. Phenomenal review. If you want to read a review of Killers of the Flower Moon, Manola Dargis published a few weeks ago. Excellent. If you have the paywall. How did Stanzik feel about it? I think he was okay about it. I, I just I just messaged him. Go, hey, I know you're a New York Times guy. Can you send to me? He's got no problem. Happy, happy to help. It's like sharing <laughs> passwords, right? If you're sharing passwords, no big deal. Yeah. Anyways, we get to the topic at hand, which is it, you're really the way you want to experience a movie, which I was able to do with poor things was I don't know any reviews. There's no buzz to it. I'm seeing it literally a month before it premieres, December 8th. It's available in theaters. And I was able to watch it November 8th. Took my wife to go see it. So first question, you're like, oh, no. What about the phone issue? But this is what's great with the critic screening. Very serious. Everyone's got the plastic black glasses. They all wear black. Drinking their coffees, their scarves, espressos. They've got notebooks. So I'm like, she can't take the phone out. Like they, they, they will, you'll be shamed by everybody around you if you take your phone out. So I'm like, this is a massive win. I really want to see this movie. I know she's going to be into it and she can't take her phone out. And thankfully she enjoyed it as much as I did. But how, do, how do critics in this dark theater write down on so stuff? A hundred percent. Excellent question. Because that's the thing. I'm like, wow, I, I, I've done it before. Like when I think before I was a cinephile film critic, I I'm think like I would... waiting for a lit scene and then I'm like holding it up. So I'm like using the light from the theater. Oh, yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. Like you're writing, but you don't really know what you're writing. And you're right. At least 30 percent of the time I'd go back and I'm like, I can't read this. Just a bunch of chicken scratch. I'm not really sure what this was. So it's better just to mentally compart what you're watching. But there definitely was critics. That guy from Robot, I remember he was writing and I was laughing. I'm like, oh, I have a notebook. He's like, well, I, I just bought a new one just for this movie. Three and a half hours. Jesus. And he's flipping pages over. So I was I found it amusing. A couple of times it took me out of the movie because I'm watching it. And then peripherally, I see him writing. I'm like, oh, why is he writing about this? Scene? Like, what is it about this that he's capturing? But this seems like a fairly generic scene. But regardless, he was he was scribbling away furiously. So with poor things, it was so much fun because I go, all I know is it's crazy. And it, it's from this guy who's a crazy director. And I say that with affection.
And here's the story. The incredible tale about the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, a young woman brought back to life by the brilliant and unorthodox scientist, Dr. Godwin Baxter. Yorgos Lanthimos is the director. If you like your indie movies and crazy movies, you know who he is. He directed The Lobster, one of Ron Rosillo's favorite movies. So I often cite to Rosillo the scene where Colin Farrell is first going in to meet them. They say, what is your sexuality? And he's like, I'm bisexual. And they go, we don't have that option anymore. You're either heterosexual or homosexual. And the look on his face, Colin Farrell's to give like 12 seconds where he has to pause and mull over this important question. Eventually, he's like heterosexual. I'm like, all right. But the lobster, there's also a scene with John C. Riley. They, they put his hand in a toaster because he gets caught masturbating. Like, it's just a bizarre movie. The favorite, probably more of you have seen, that movie won Academy Award for Olivia Coleman. That was a surprise win for Best Actress. But again, beautiful period piece, a sumptuous production design, clothing, et cetera. But then he's got some weird stuff going on. So Emma Stone reunites here with Yorgos Lanthimos. And the buzz has been she's going to be nominated for an Academy Award and she may even win, maybe even the favorite. No pun intended. And the movie starts out, Willem Dafoe's face. And I love Willem Dafoe. Previous guest here in Cinephile. He was very gracious. Name checked me. Very nice guy. We talked platoon, talked autofocus, affliction. But I've always been a little bit concerned looking at Willem Dafoe's face because I'm like, is he is he classically handsome or is he just kind of weird looking? Because he's got those high cheekbones and he's very skinny. And I'm like, he's and even I believe that he may have said he because I've always had a unique look. I'm like, yeah, like I think he's he's good looking guys. Willem Dafoe. But I'm like, great he's actor also, or weird. Yeah. Great actor or weird. You kind of go in that territory. And I think he's a great actor only because when I spoke to him, he seemed very down to earth. Nice guy. But he could be a little bit weird. But in this movie, they make him look so weird. Quickly Google right now, Cody, Willem Dafoe as Dr. Godwin Baxter. Poor things. You'll see this man's face. How horribly disfigured they made Willem Dafoe look. It was six hours in a makeup chair, and he said he was thrilled to do it. I listened to him uh, on the podcast with a Smartless podcast. Uh, it was a, probably a couple months ago, actually. He, he briefly mentioned, because no, I love this movie. Lanthimos is crazy. Six hours of makeup. He looks demented. And you watch the movie, and you go, okay, so it's Frankenstein. He's Holy Frankenstein. shit. <laughs> yeah. Holy crap. Like, he just, just looks deformed, right? This is just a disgusting What's going on with his chin? Yeah. Scarred and puffy. and So... The character, he he births Emma Stone. And the story showed us initially, Chris is now screen sharing with me. I mean, it's, it's, it is just a marvel. Scarred, puffy, chin protruding, just a horrifying look. Just like a cross down the side of his face. You're right. There's some sort of religious allegory here with that cross. because Because Emma Stone, as the movie quickly shows, commits suicide. That's, this is the prologue to it. Commits suicide, retrieves her body. And then he puts in another brain in her head. So this is Frankenstein. It's that the brain of an infant is in her head. And so, like, you know, the movie starts out. Rami Yusuf shows up. My oh, man, love Rami. Would love to get him on the podcast. Love his show on Hulu. This is a big role for him. Like, man, dude, you're in a Yorgos Lanthimos movie. Pretty good. He shows up as Max McCandles, and he's here to investigate what's going on. So Dr. Godwin Baxter, who goes by the name of God. Maybe the cross does make sense. Emma Stone's Bella Bash. She only calls him God. God, what should I do now? God, what can I do? God, am I allowed to do this? I'm like, okay, God, whatever you say. And he's got that crazy, you know, Transylvanian accent going as well. And it's it's bizarre because you see how she's like an infant. Like the acting is incredible by Emma Stone because her movements, her motions, her voice, it's like that of a two-year-old, and yet it's in a human body. And there's one incredible scene where dance music starts playing, and you know, having seen La La Land, for which she won an Academy Award. That girl can dance, her and Ryan Gosling making sweet music together. So when she's dancing, she's not dancing perfectly. She's dancing like with some rhythm, but also as if it was a five-year-old child dancing. It's bizarre, to say the least. But Defoe is God. He's Frankenstein. And Rami Yusuf is entranced. And he says to her at one point, 
uh, I don't know if I can even repeat what he says, but he, he uses like an offensive term, but he's saying that she's beautiful. And God's like, yeah, no, he's like, oh, I, I'm falling for her. I'm like, what? Like you're in love with this beautiful woman, but she's like the brain of a five-year-old. And then he says to a woman before, he's like, did you fuck her? He's like, what? He's like, he's like I'm a eunuch. And he's like, what? He's like, I'm a eunuch. I can't fuck. He's like, <laughs> I, we, we would need all the electricity in North London for me to even get an erection. I was howling. And, and the, the crowd was, it was a good crowd. Again, the critics, so we're all laughing our heads off the line. But Rami Youssef wants to marry her. He wants to control. He's already fallen in love with her. And then Mark Ruffalo shows up, who is, again, one of my favorite actors. He's playing Duncan Wedderburn. And he is the character that, you know, of an, of an earlier time, you'd refer to him as a cad. You know, you'd say he dresses like a dandy. You know, shows up. He's got the twirling mustache. Good looking guy. Got the hair dressed to the nines, three piece suit, cigarette holder. I'm like, OK, this guy's bad news. But all the girls love him. Like he he is a charmer. He is a swindler. And he shows up and he seduces her and convinces her to leave God. So in the middle of the night they go and they take off. And then the movie becomes a different story. So you think it's basically Frankenstein, but then it becomes a feminist tale. Because as Bella gets older, she develops her own mind, her own brain. And she doesn't like being trapped by this guy, Duncan, who wants to marry her. And by the way, very graphic sex scenes. I was like, wasn't was not expecting Miss Stone to take this turn. But when when Duncan is seducing her, they get after it in in uh rather upfront detail. But again, she starts to develop a nudity? mind out. Yeah, there's Amazon definitely nudity. nudity. Yeah, not quite like uh no hard feelings. Which uh, Reddit was able to hook us up with because I was unable to see that on the. On I don't the know phone. how Reddit just. I don't know. It <laughs> stumbled upon my phone. I don't know how it happened. <laughs> so now I know why she got paid the twenty five million, Jennifer Lawrence. But anyways, Duncan wants to control her. You're mine. You're my wife. You can do what I say. But he realizes, much like dealing with a child, she has a mind of her own. And so at one point they're out for dinner and she's ill mannered. You know, she's making stupid comments. He's like, "Listen, you moron!" Like he takes her aside. Like, here's the things you're supposed to say. Here's what you're not supposed to say. But she doesn't know. She has the mind of an infant. In the meantime, Rami Yusuf is heartbroken because she's left him. She's out with Duncan. I will say no further, except the story becomes a real feminist tale. And eventually there is an extended sequence in a bordello, which not only very funny, but unforgettable. Like once she realizes that she needs the money and she's willing to have sex for money because she's just super horny. Because now she's in, enjoying experience on this for this time. Like, there's one guy that gets on top of her, this, this French guy who's not quite an aristocrat, like Ruffalo's character. Three thrusts, and he's done. And she just bursts out laughing. Can't wait to take this guy's money. Another guy, an unforgettable scene, has like his son there. And while he's doing stuff to Emma Stone, he's like doing narration. He's telling his son in French, look what I'm doing now. Like I said, the movie's bonkers, but I loved it. I thought it was brilliant. It's really funny. And I think makes a lot of smart points. Uh, that's probably the best way I could describe it. It's Dr. Frankenstein in a feminist tale. It's very opulent. The production design is amazing. Even the way he shoots it, Lanthimos is such a visionary director. He gives it that style of like a movie from like the 1920s at times. Like it feels like one of these gothic horror movies, you know, like a F.W. Murnau picture. And he's balancing all these different genres. And at times, you feel like you're watching Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. It's in black and white, then it's in color haunting score the music's fantastic it's got this kind of impish flavor to it so it's um it's really a movie that i think people are really going to enjoy i'll give it three and a half maple leaves my wife went three maple leaves she's like it was a little bit long a little too much sex for her puritan views but i think people are really going to enjoy it and uh, make sure you check out poor things oscars will be showering their riches upon them i think as far as nominations are concerned best director best picture best actress and i hopefully a couple of best supporting actor nods for ruffalo and willem dafoe both those guys are terrific color me intrigued 
Yeah, you're, you're definitely going to be wanting to watch important things. It's going to have a lot of buzz at the water cooler. Next up, May, December on Netflix, I believe very soon. Limited theaters right now. Synopsis is 20 years after the notorious tabloid romance gripped the nation, a married couple buckles under pressure when an actress arrives to do research for a film about their past. It's from director Todd Haynes, whose film Far From Heaven, I think, is just a gorgeous film. It's a real throwback and homage to the Douglas Sirk movies um, about the 1950s, those women's pictures, melodramas, etc. So he's got a really fantastic eye. He also did I'm Not There, which I could see Mike Ryan liking. It's a movie about Bob Dylan with like seven different people playing Bob Dylan, including Kate Blanchett. I wasn't as enamored of that picture, but he's certainly a very talented director. When you hear a Todd Haynes movie's coming, you know it's going to be important. And it's got the pedigree of Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore. Portman plays Elizabeth. She's the actress coming in. They're going to make a TV movie about Julianne Moore's life. She plays Gracie. And why is it so interesting? Because Julianne Moore, as Gracie, when she was 36 years of age, married with kids, had an affair with a student, ended up marrying the student, and ostracized herself from her community and her children, not to mention her ex-husband. The question you're not asking, Cody, how old was the student? Yeah. Now, this is, I think, it's a little bit ripped from the headlines here. I think the act of, the real person is Mary Kay Letourneau, if I'm not mistaken, uh, also very famously was a middle, you know, not middle-aged, but mid-30s female, had sex with one of her students in an affair and became a real cause celebrity. At one point, they say, when he kind of comes to reckoning what's gone through his life, Charles Melton, by the way, is the actor playing Joe Yu, who's very good. He says he was in seventh grade. So I quickly do the math. I'm like 36 and 12. At another point, he gets angry. He says, I'm 13. And I was like, okay. 36 and 13. (laughs) Now, I read another review where someone says he's 14. I'm like, I've never heard of a 14-year-old in seventh grade. I watched the film. They specifically said seventh grade. That's also not much better. Like, like, I love how it's like, oh, if he's 14, it's all okay. Like, imagine if if you're a grown man, 30, I mean, you're 34. Six. 36. Perfect. This is great. 36-year-old man. If you had an affair with a student, it's game over for Chris Cody. See ya. You're never seeing him again. Like, it's been a nice life, and that's it. What happened to Cody? He's been canceled. Uh, he had an affair with a seventh grader. Like, what? Let's, so- let's not isolate that audio. Let's, <laughs> let, there's context there. <laughs> <laughs> so similarly, just imagine, like, you're a 36-year-old man. You have 36-year-old friends. Imagine you must know a, a girl who's a school teacher, and she tells you, I had an affair with a seventh grader. Full stop. Mic drop. He's 13. I'm going to marry him. She ended up going to prison. And and what was so fascinating is you see Natalie Portman as an actress doing her homework. She's investigating the story. She talks to the ex-husband who, by the way, fascinating character. Like, wait, what was it like when you found out your wife who moved they have kids with is having sex with a 13 year old? They were discovered in a pet store. So Natalie Portman goes to the pet store and goes, can I, you know, can I take a look? And it's again, she goes in the back, starts playing with herself. Like she's trying to, relive the moment i'm like oh my god you're a grown woman and you want to you want to get in the character like i love what todd haynes is making a point about actors is that they're parasites they're just going to suck the blood out of everything around them right she's a method actress i want to know everything i don't care about any of you i just want to suck the blood away and give a great performance and win an academy award at one point you see her talking to her husband whatever she's like, oh the movie's going okay but she's really getting into the character but the ex-husband was like you know what do you think? I ruined my life. Like, I, I wasn't expecting this. And he goes, what was so crazy about Gracie was she didn't understand what was wrong with it. Like, she knew she had an affair, but she was kind of like, I'm in love. It is what it is. I'm like, but you're a pedophile. 
like you're going to prison. Like this isn't like, well, you know, I live, I'm leaving my husband, and my kids. You're going to prison. You slept with a, a, a teenage boy. So she goes Just to prison. Minds warped about it. Oh Ugh. yeah, ends up going to prison. Has a kid with this now second husband. And at one point, Natalie Portman makes a joke to the guy, like, "Hey, like we're around the same age. Like I'm, I'm 36, and you have a kid who's like 19. How crazy is that?" He's like, "Yeah." And you can start to see where the story's going. Definitely an homage to Ingmar Bergman's persona as these two characters kind of mesh together. At one point, they're both looking in the mirror together, doing their makeup. You go, "Okay, I see what he's going here. He's making a point about identity and about how." This actress is clearly a parasite. She's sucking the marrow of this person's life. But she also sucked away her own life, meaning Gracie. Like she, she, maybe she was a predator. Maybe she took advantage of this 13-year-old boy who didn't know where he was. He wasn't able to make decisions the way a grown adult would. And so was she also culpable of taking advantage of somebody and, as I said, sucking away the life out of him? It's a fascinating subject. The movie is very interesting. I give it three maple leaves. I encourage people to check it out. The story definitely takes some turns I wasn't expecting. I was expecting a big twist at the end, kind of like my criticism of uh, whatever the hell I reviewed, The Killer, I think, kind of the anticlimactic ending. I was expecting a little more for the ending, but but definitely provocative subject matter. It's the kind of thing where if, they, if you told me there's a documentary, I'm sure there is. There's got to be a doc out there about Mary Kill Eternal. I think that's her name, who actually lived this life. It would be fascinating to see, like, what exactly was your thought process that you thought you could do this and it would be acceptable within society? But... Terrific performances. Julianne Moore might get a Best Supporting Actress nomination. Natalie Portman, always terrific, might be a Best Actress nominee. Todd Haynes' film, it's called May-December. It's currently available on Netflix. Now, I'm, I'm about to ask something very stupid because you said something in all that, and I was like, wait, did he mean that? Like no, Natalie, no, Portman, Natalie Portman, when studying for the role, went into this thing and... No, that's my fault because I'm saying that part. I should say Elizabeth. So she's playing Elizabeth, okay, who's an it, actress. Her character, so the character okay. of Elizabeth is going the way so you painted that. It was like yeah. when Natalie was preparing for the role, she went into the back and was like, no, "I gotta no, no. just get in character." I was like, "Whoa!" Yeah, no, no, Elizabeth okay. as the character. But you're right. On set, it must be interesting because at times you can see Natalie Portman is like mimicking Julianne Moore's moments. And Ty Byrne, his terrific review, talked about Rachel McAdams in Spotlight. Um, you know, she's playing a journalist for the Boston Globe. And the actual journalist told Ty Burr, she goes, it was really weird. At one point, I was talking to Rachel McAdams. I noticed she slowed down her walk and she was studying how I was walking. <laughs> it was so That's creepy. Funny. Like, like then there's great stories, obviously. Pacino's my guy. Pacino, when he played Serpico, he said it was incredible. Like they say, do you ever want to meet the actor? He's like, oh, absolutely. The real person? Oh, yeah. He goes, Frank Serpico, I hung out. For like months he's like we would go go up for beers go up for drinks like, like uh, i wanted to know everything about it but then to that parasitic point when the movie was over serpica was crushed he's like oh but you know stop calling me she didn't let stop calling me the director's like what do you mean like, the job is done now like we're good <laughs> on to <laughs> the thought, next yeah i thought we were buddies I'm like well we are but we're done like thanks for everything the movie's awesome dude I, I, it's an iconic movie serpico it's you i did it for you now we're done we move on we move on as well with our reviews um anatomy of a fall palm door winner a woman is suspected of her husband's murder and their blind son faces a moral dilemma as the main witness. Yeah, good good subject matter, huh? You hear that story? Oh, my God. Sandra Hewler plays the main actress. I believe she also received plaudits at the Cannes Film Festival. She could be in line for Best Actress nominee. Courtroom drama. I thought it was very well done. A little long, two and a half hours. But it builds up to that moment. Who's guilty? Who's not guilty? Because all that we know is a tragic accident happens. Apparently, her husband falls from their house. Did she push him? Was he pushed? Did he fall, et cetera? That's why it's called anatomy of a fall. So it becomes a courtroom thriller. And what's fascinating about it is you're, you're tempted to think along with the rest of the jury. Did she or didn't she? 
Did she kill her husband? Did he not? Was it an accident? Did he fall on his own, et cetera? And the story gets in the murky details. And where the story really starts to be gripping is an hour and a half in, they do a flashback of a fight that her and her husband had the day before. Fantastic. And she's not painting an image of them having a perfect marriage. She's thinking that we had some issues, but I would never kill my husband. Like he fell, that's it. And their son, here's the big wrinkle, is blind. So he was down there and he, you know, didn't, I wouldn't say, obviously did not see his father fall, but was aware <laughs> of the situation, could hear something that happened. And so at one point, they're trying to replicate the situation because the, the husband loved loud music. So it was very, very soothing. But it's a sample from 50 Cent. Uh, it's PIMP. So it's, it's an instrumental version. So this is amazing scene, like just blasting, blaring PIMP instrumental version. And they're trying to replicate going, oh, okay, could you in this moment be able to hear if your mom hit him, fell, like what exactly was happening? And again, I'm no expert on these things, but clearly when people have said if they're lacking one sense, their other senses become heightened. I know this from watching Scent of a Woman. <laughs> so because Pacino can't see, his sense of smell is incredible. He can smell the perfume of every woman. You know, your hearing is heightened. So if the boy's hearing is heightened, or lowest, he hopes. But that flashback is so good because it ends up really giving a lot of murkiness to the character. I don't know. I thought <laughs> if anybody can hear that, that's, that's PIMP. It's great. <laughs> but it's almost, it, it is that instrumental, but like it's even like, I don't know, it's like a European version of it. Like it's a little bit more blaring. It's like got some yeah. classical notes to it, but it's great. But but you hear that song in this movie, like you, you can't watch me and not think of that song now. I'm like, oh my Classic. God, every time I'm going to hear this song, it's whack. Um, but again, Sandra Hiller, terrific performance. And, and the movie really hinges on did she or didn't, didn't she? And it's not at least one of those movies which is open-ended. Uh, again, I will not. I will not give away the ending. I will just say simply that, it, that there is a resolution. You know, part of me was thinking this is like one of these you know thrillers from the '90s, like Basic Instinct. Did she or didn't she? And then you think she's okay with Michael Douglas, and all of a sudden, boom! Last shot, ice pick. Joe Esterhaus, Paul Verhoeven, Mike drop. I'm not going to spoil the ending. I will simply say that there is a resolution, and it's an excellent movie. I'm giving it three Maple Leafs: Anatomy of a Fall, courtroom thriller. Lastly, before we get to our special guest Scott Iman. Albert Brooks Defending My Life, one of my favorite movies of the year, Four Maple Leafs, a documentary about the comedian and filmmaker Albert Brooks, which includes interviews from Sharon Stone, Larry David, James L. Brooks, Conan O'Brien, Sarah Silverman, and Jonah Hill. And my biggest criticism of this, even as I give it Four Maple Leafs, and it's one of my top 10 movies of the year, I wish it was longer. Only an hour and a half of Albert Brooks. The guy is so funny and clearly such an original filmmaker and such a big influence on others. I can't believe this is all they gave us. But the story is... Him and Rob Reiner hanging out. Rob Reiner and him are old high school buddies. They've been friends for 60 years. So he takes Albert Brooks out for dinner and they film it. And they're telling stories. And both the sons are famous people. Albert Brooks' dad was a comedian. And Rob Reiner, of course, his dad is Carl Reiner. And they tell early on Carl Reiner, who's this you know, legend of comedy, when he's on an interview, I think, I don't know what show it was, maybe Jack Parr. He goes, who's the funniest person you know? He goes, oh, my son Rob's friend Albert is... Like the funniest person I know. He's hysterical. And he goes, like, he was 16 years old. We're like, that, that's when you're like, wait, my dad thinks this guy's funny? And they show his old comedy routines, went on Carson 30 times. He was just so original in his comedy. It was just so unique what he was doing. And what I always appreciate with these documentaries is you have so many other talking heads. They're the ones that really make it. They're the ones that make it special. So if you and I are watching Albert Brooks on his own, yeah, it's certainly funny. But when you hear Judd Apatow is telling you, this is why it's so funny. This is why it's so influential. Larry David talking about certain routines he did. Conan O'Brien, Chris Rock, uh, Ben Stiller is a huge fan. of Sarah Silverman, Jonah Hill is a massive Albert Brooks guy. As you can understand, man, Albert Brooks, like, I grew up in this guy's comedy to actually get to meet him and know him a little bit. 
So it's a very affectionate and warm tribute, and it really wants me to go back and watch some of his movies. I've seen Lost in America. came out in 1985. Very funny. The title comes from, I think, his best film, which is Defending Your Life. This title is Defending My Life. And Rob asks him, you know, the story, how did you cast Meryl Streep? And he's like, I was just at a party. And she was like, oh, I'd love to work with you one day. And I'm like, well, you know, I've got this script. And she was like, I'm in. And I'm like, this is Meryl Streep. This is the greatest actress ever. You're in? He's like, yeah, I love your work. Whatever it is, go ahead. I'm in. So that's how he cast Meryl Streep as the female lead this movie. And it's really funny. Rip Torn is excellent playing the defense attorney. If you haven't seen it, it's about a guy who dies. And what happens when you die is they have a court case. And Rip Torn is representing him. He's telling him, you know, you only use 4% of your brain. I use 48%. And they have a trial. And your life goes, you watch scenes of your life. And you go, okay, remember what happened here? You should have made a better decision here. Uh, this wasn't great. This is one of your guilt and your regrets. It's a brilliant movie because it's funny, but also very smart and very provocative. And Rob Reiner asks Albert Brooks, hey, what do you think is going to happen when you die? What do you think heaven is like? But the guy is hysterical. Uh, most recently, I think people saw him in Curb Your Enthusiasm, where he was outed as a COVID hoarder. Larry David tells the story. He says, well, of course, uh, his brother, Bob Einstein, Super Dave, no longer with us. And that's the other thing, too. Albert Brooks' real name is Albert Einstein. And Rob Reiner said to me, he's like, how many people think know that? And he goes, I feel like people used to really know that about me, and now they didn't know it, and now some people kind of do know it. He's like, but the point is this. I'm, I'm the one of four boys, and my dad had three chances being an Einstein to go with Albert, but he chose me. He could have any of my three brothers. He went with Bob or whatever. He's like, no, my last kid, I'm calling him Albert. He's going by Albert Einstein. He goes, but then eventually I changed it to Albert Brooks. But yeah, I mean, if, if, you, if they have like the high school yearbook photos, Albert Einstein. Just imagine the pressure, Cody, being known as Albert Einstein. And you're a comedian. No. Too much I don't want that. One yeah, I don't want that. <laughs> I didn't know any of the stuff about his dad. His dad's a, his dad died on stage. Fascinating story. It was at a yeah, it was at a roast. They were doing a roast, and he said his dad up there killed, did like a great 10 minutes, went back to his chair and died. That's killed. It. Literally died. And he, he said he killed and then killed. Yeah, exactly. He killed and then was then killed. And like they, they were like, well, the show must go on. And at one point that they asked him singer to go on there. And the song, Albert Brooks tells it so well. He goes, I think, I don't know, Jimmy Durante, whoever it is. He goes, they're telling, they go, sing, sing. And he goes, but the guy's most famous song was There Will Be No Tomorrow. <laughs> He's like, this is the song playing. My dad has collapsed. There's a gurney. There's an ambulance. And there's this guy warbling. There will be no tomorrow. Okay, thanks. Clearly fitting. But he said it definitely impacted his life. Because whenever I'm doing comedy and stuff, I'm like, thinking, like, my dad died in this state. But... Again, as a comedian, as an original thinker, as a provocateur, like when you hear Chris Rock talking about him, like, dude, there's been no one like Albert Brooks. And David Letterman at one point says, if I could have my career, Albert Brooks, I'd take Albert Brooks. He's like, wrote, produced, directed, starred in his movies. And his character parts, amazing. Broadcast News, which Levitard's a huge fan of. He and I have talked about Albert Brooks, was Academy Award nominated for that movie. Amazing. Like whenever people ask me about broadcasting, I'm like, watch broadcast news, watch Albert Brooks. And the scene where he starts sweating, that's the most famous scene. He's a reporter. He gets to fill in for William Hurt. He goes, where did that come from? Rob Reiner asked him. And he said, I was watching CNN one night and I saw this guy get nervous. He started to sweat a little bit. And I called James L. Brooks and I go, I got it. When he does it, he goes, we're just going to have sweat pouring. He's just going to be just drenched. That That's going to be the scene. And to this day, if you ever see somebody perspiring a little bit, looking uncomfortable on television, like, oh, man, it's hot here. Oh, man, going to have like an Albert Brooks moment in broadcast news. Anybody who's smart will get the joke and get the reference. And I always laugh every time I hear it and every time I see that scene. Also, most recently, I think Jonah, Jonah Hill mentioned, because I love him in character parts. Like in Drive, he's fantastic. Ryan Gosling at one point, you know, he's all dirty. He, Albert Brooks extends his hand and he says, oh, my hands are dirty. And Albert Brooks smiles and goes, so are mine. 
<laughs> Great scene. Homicidal killer. And of course, why do I love Albert Brooks? As a comedian, what was his big breakthrough movie? Taxi Driver. And he's told the story many a time. He said, you know, Paul Schrader has said, actually, the writer of Taxi Driver, because it was so clever by Marty, because he's got De Niro, he's got Keitel, he's got Jodie Foster, who's 14 years old, playing a 12-year-old prostitute. He's got Sybil Shepard. And he goes, this character is fairly bland. He's just a guy working for a politician, Charles Palantine. He goes, he cast a comedian and he cast Albert Brooks. And Schrader's told the story. Albert Brooks went up to him. Schrader went up to him, sorry. After the movie, he goes, hey, thanks so much for, for your performance. Like, I couldn't figure out your character. But like, you were the one that I couldn't crack. You were awesome. Albert Brooks looks at him and goes, so the character of a taxi driver who becomes a homicidal maniac, that you felt you could write. The, the child prostitute, you had no issues coming back to life. But a <laughs> nine to five guy working in a presidential office, that was the one you couldn't crack. He's like, he's like oh my God, Paul, Paul Schrader's a demented man. But he said, I love Marty. He goes, he was so great to work with. He goes, Marty loves comedy and he loves comedians and he knew who I was. That's why he cast me. And he said, I would, I would go to the set on the days that I wasn't shooting. I would just go just to watch De Niro. I would watch Marty direct. And he goes, it was a blast. And he goes, to this day, I have such warm feelings. And he goes, I never thought a film like Taxi Driver, I would have even a small part of. He said, that, that's what a great, great film it was. And later, The Muse, which is with Sharon Stone, there's an incredible Scorsese cameo. If you've never seen it, you don't have to watch the whole movie. But just look up Scorsese cameo in The Muse. Sharon Stone plays a muse who literally helps creative types get back their star power. So Albert Brooks goes to see her. He's like, how can I be a writer and stuff? But he's like, other people start showing up. James Cameron shows up. And at one point, she's giving him advice. And then Marty walks out. And Albert Brooks is like, but he's not playing Marty Scorsese. He's just playing a director. And he's like, I've got an idea for a movie. He's like, do you want to hear it? Do you want to hear it? He's like, yeah. He goes, it's about a guy. Because I'm doing a remake of Raging Bull. He's like, what? He goes, a sequel to Raging Bull. He's like, yeah. He goes, except this time the guy's really thin. He's like, what? He goes, he's really thin, but angry. Thin and angry. Thin and angry. Thin and angry. Do you see it? Do you see it? Albert Brooks is like, hey, I see it. He goes, do you see it? Sit it angry. Raging Bull sequel. And he goes, uh, you know, there's a Starbucks running and we're going to get coffee. Albert Brooks goes, I don't know. I, I think you've had your quota for today. He goes, quota? That gives you an idea for another different picture. We never spoke. I'll never see you again. But amazing. The fact that he cast Scorsese in the muse to me is so funny. If you look up the clip, I just did it, but it'll be even funny when you see Marty doing it with uh, Albert Brooks. No mention of the scout. No mention of the scout. Sadly, you're right. That is an Albert Brooks classic. That was one of my other things, too, I'll get to in a second, looking for comedy in the Muslim world, which I love, which I don't think everyone sees, but five people have seen it. Like, they're not going to mention it, but they do mention it. I'll tell that story in just a second. I had something else I wanted to say. It was about Larry David. Larry David goes, I can tell when they're nervous. And he goes, Albert was kind of nervous that day. And so I was like, mm, he's kind of nervous. <laughs> Even he feels like this is a big deal. Like, I'm on curb. And of course, Bob Watson, his brother, is incredible. Uh, Marty Funkhauser, who's now, of course, passed on. But Marty Funkhauser, amazing. But the fact he's a COVID hoarder on Curb, amazing. I wish they'd done more. Like, I remember when Albert Brooks was on them. Like, oh my God, Albert Brooks is going to be on Curb. It was just the one episode. I wish he'd done more, but he was awesome. Looking for comedy in the Muslim world. He tells a story. He goes, you know, this is later in his career. It's tough to get funny. He goes, I, I can never get funny for my movies, right? Because I, I write them, I produce them, I direct them, and I star them. It's hard to get the funny. Eventually, we, we get the movie. And he goes, and then the cartoons happen. The Danish cartoons of the prophet. And he goes, it's a big controversy. And the studio's like, listen, we can't release this movie. The title is looking for comedy in the Muslim world. And Albert Brooks goes, I have, the whole point of the movie is the title. You can't take that of the title. So he goes, eventually, because <laughs> we had to like a, a financing from like Jay date. They're like, we're going to do something new. How about no advertising for the movie? I'm like, what? And he goes, you, you've been in these pitch meetings. Like, it's a great idea. No TV advertising. We'll just release the movie. I'm like, great. The movie's going to tank. No one's going to see it. He goes, but I'll tell you this story. I'm at the Dubai Film Festival. And he goes, I'm up there with like the shake and like still the women and stuff. And he goes, they're all on their phones. And he goes, this sucks. I'm watching the movie. They're all on their phones. And he goes, but there's one part. I'm like, I want to see their reaction. 
And then they show the clip of the movie. So funny. The woman wearing the veil. And she's like, are you a Jew? And he's like, what's that? He goes, are you a Jew? And he's like, uh, a little bit. And he's like, you are? He's like, some of the time. And she goes, how often? And he goes, part-time. <laughs> he says, he goes, just for that scene, as soon as she goes, are you a Jew? He goes, the guys all looked up. And he goes, when I said part-time, they're like, big laugh, big laugh, big laugh. <laughs> My work here is done at the Dubai Film Festival. I love Albert Brooks. I love the movie. I want everyone to go check out Defending My Life for Maple Leafs for a guy who's obviously been a huge influence on movie. Come up blurbs here for you. John Anderson of Wall Street Journal, not the John Anderson of Sports Center. The time feels right for an Albert Brooks assessment, although one by Mr. Reiner was never going to be anything but glowing. And as it happens, convincing. Caleb Marsh of New York Times. While Brooks deserves acclaim, he deserves it in a format as compelling and dynamic as he is. Defending my life is simply too flat. I mean, it's like two guys having dinner. Dan Feinberg, Hollywood Reporter. It's hard not to feel like Brooks got a tiny bit shortchanged with merely a feature-length doc, one of which my primary complaint was, give me more. But an Albert Brooks documentary with an inferiority complex, appropriate. A couple other blurbs here for and then we'll get to our uh, featured guest. Anatomy of a Fall from Odie Henderson of Boston Globe. Trier, who's a director, approaches so many elements from slightly askew angles that bend just enough to support conflicting arguments. Keith Ulick, a clear and clean Palm d'Or winner, every ambiguity and unexpected choice, so carefully thought through that awards can't help but be thrown at it. And Adam Graham of Detroit News, Trier's script, which she co-wrote with her IRL partner, Arthur Harari, is always pushing forward, pulling and peeling back new layers as it goes and going deep inside the fraught underlying tension of Sandra and Samuel's marriage. And May, December, my man Ty Burr. It's a little as if Bergman's persona had been remade by the Real Housewives of Savannah. Wendy Ida of Observer, Serpentine, it's plodding, queasily unsettling in its subject matter and very, very funny. Todd Haynes' latest picture is a deft tonal juggling act, as you'll see anywhere this year. And Poor Things will be out December 8th. Keith Ulick, Yorgos Lanthimos finally has his Dr. Jekyll and Ms. Hyde. And Brian Tallarico of RogerEbert.com. It can be hysterically funny and incredibly disturbing, sometimes in the same beat, and it's the most visually accomplished film that Lanthimos has made. Those are your reviews. Once again, poor things. I'm giving three and a half Maple Leafs. May, December gets three Maple Leafs. Anatomy of a Fall gets three Maple Leafs. And Albert Brooks defending my life, four Maple Leafs. Now it's time for our special guest. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Well, it's a pleasure to bring in Scott Iman right now. His book is called Charlie Chaplin versus America When Art, Sex, and Politics Collided. It is a terrific book. I encourage you all to go check it out. And it's available now in bookstores. Scott, congrats on making a terrific book. Thank you. It ain't easy. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I mean, Chaplin's a fascinating character, and uh, there's lots to get into. I, I found this really specifically interesting about his relationship with Buster Keaton. This is a story late in the book you tell. At dinner, Sora began to go on and on about Keaton, how wonderful he thought he was for a great filmmaker. My father got smaller and smaller in his chair. He was so hurt, it looked as if someone had stabbed him. He became very quiet, didn't say a word through the rest of dinner. Afterwards, we're sitting by the fire and talking about other things now. 
My father was looking at the fire, still not talking. Then he looked at Carlos in the eyes and said, but I was an artist and I gave him work. He'd been thinking about it all during dinner. What was that relationship like with Chaplin and Buster Keaton? Well, it was one of mutual respect. Uh, obviously, Chaplin would never have hired him for, for Limelight. I mean, clearly. Uh, but at the time, Keaton was, uh, you know, on his in his recovery phase from years of alcoholism. And he was working, but it was mostly in television. And Chaplin didn't watch television because he thought it was terrible. <laughs> so he didn't really understand that Keaton was not a broken down drunk anymore, that he was actually more or less sober and was working all the time. Uh, and the part when he hired Keaton, the, uh, the, the, the sequence began evolving because when Chaplin saw Keaton and they started thinking and talking about the scene, it began expanding. And what had basically been a kind of a walk on part became a, uh, 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 a kind of twilight of the gods, a scene between two, uh, incredible talents at the tail end of their careers and lives actually uh and it just expanded into a, a seven or eight minute uh, uh a symphony comedy symphony really whereas it had been intended as, as a very brief walk-on kind of thing almost a guest appearance yeah amazing to think they were able to collaborate in that respect uh his relationship with his wife significantly younger this is a beautiful story at the end when una boarded a flight to london a friend noticed she opened her purse and took something out the friend looked closely and saw that it was one of charlie's gloves Una held on to it for the entire flight as if his hand was still inside it. Yeah. Yeah. That is a lovely vignette. Uh, the, uh, uh, it was a, a, a spectacularly successful marriage from day one. Uh, even though everybody thought it was just another one of Charlie's caprices because she was 18 and he was 52 or 53 at the time. But uh, they were together for the rest of his life. Uh, idyllically happy. They had eight children together. Uh, and when he died after, you know, the usual uh, uh, slow uh, diminishment of old age, it was extraordinarily difficult for her uh, because he had been the center of her life just as he had, uh, she had been the center of his life. And the re I think the reason the marriage was such a roaring success compared to his other marriages was that for the first time, he'd found someone who gave him uh, absolute acceptance. She didn't want him to be anything other than what he already was. She didn't want to change him. You know, she was absolutely happy with the man she found uh, when she was 18 years old. And in return, he gave her absolute acceptance as well, because she had this catastrophic relationship with her father, Eugene O'Neill, a uh, wonderful writer, god awful human being, uh, and uh, who, who always, whatever Una did was wrong as far as her father was concerned. She could do no right. So the fact that Chaplin accepted her on her terms uh, and she accepted him on his terms. Uh, they basically almost never had a crossword uh, between them because each of them gave the other what they'd been looking for their entire lives. Mm. That's so sweet to think about. You mentioned Eugene O'Neill. November of 1953, Eugene O'Neill died, supposedly uttering the furious last words, born in a hotel room and God damn it, died in a hotel room. O'Neill was as vicious in death as he had been in life. His will contained this provision. I purposely exclude from any interest under this will my son, Shane O'Neill, my daughter, Una O'Neill Chaplin. I exclude their issue now and hereafter born. Why was he such a nasty cuss? Well, he was an Irish drunk. And, and Irish drunks are not noted for their uh, gentle benevolence. <laughs> uh, he was just, he had no, he was, he was not a domestic human being. His marriages were bad. His, his, his last wife, to whom he was married for a number of years before he died, basically was his caretaker 
and was whatever you whatever you say, Gene. You know, she 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 capitulated completely, which is what he wanted. Uh, both of his sons were suicides. Uh, I, I suspect uh, Una uh, uh, escaped only because she was lucky enough to marry Chaplin. Yeah, like I said, great writer. We can uh, focus on Long Day's journey tonight and not the kind of person he was, which was obviously uh, reprehensible. Um, there's also stuff, I mean, listen, and the, the sex is in the subtitle of the book. Chaplin, a very promiscuous, active sex life. There's a story about Brooks who's talking about uh, Chaplin, and she thought he the most bafflingly complex man who ever lived. The article did not refer to what Brooks regarded as Chaplin's most bizarre affectation, his habit of painting his genitals with iodine and the belief that it would prevent venereal disease. That and the image of his bright red erection she saved for her friends. Yeah. Th 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 this was a guy who was, uh, for, especially for that time, his sexual predilections, whore, uh, mores, habits, whatever you want to call it, definitely unique, right? Stood out? Uh, no, not really. Not if you know anything about American vaudeville or English vaudeville. Yeah. It was a pretty free and easy time. Mm -hmm. uh, the Marx Brothers uh, were not known for their... Uh, 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 sobriety when it came to sex uh and a lot of perform a lot of the performers it was a very free and easy environment you know you you worked with people for a week and then you wouldn't see them again maybe ever you know so there were a lot of casual hookups uh that kind of thing and, and unless you were working with husbands and wives in which case it was more arduous uh, but and the english vaudeville was even more it was even worse because a lot of the performers were expected to drink with the audience uh, so there was more of an alcohol uh, uh, factor in England than there was in America where uh, the performers didn't have to drink with the audience. So English uh, English vaudeville was even more promiscuous than American vaudeville was. Um, but you had the, on the other hand, the acts had to be crystal clean in America. You know, the uh, the uh, the Schubert's and the rest of the uh, entrepreneurs who owned the theaters wanted clean acts because they wanted the family audience because the more people they got, the more money they made. So they, they wanted the acts clean so people could bring their children. So whatever went on behind the scenes, you know, uh, during off hours or at night, uh, nobody knew about. Well, was, was a bi it was a bipolar sexual era uh, in many respects, not just in the theater, but in America as well. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the Marx, the Marx Brothers, because Marx saw Chaplin in vaudeville and told his brothers he was the greatest comedian I'd ever seen and held that opinion for the rest of his life. We were in Salt Lake City, remember, Groucho. We all went to a whorehouse. Chaplin was so shy, the madam of the whorehouse had a dog, and Chaplin sat on the floor, played with the dog all evening. He was too shy to take a girl to bed. Five years later, though, I came up to see him. He was living at home like Mary Pickford. He invited the boys up to dinner with him, and he had a girl with him, and he was always fucking. Fucked every leading lady, like Chico. Edna Perviance was her name. I tried to fuck her, too, but she was a chaplain. The world went crazy about this guy. So if he was in inhibited earlier, he clearly wasn't later on. Well, he was extraordinarily shy. And like even in later in life, like most comedians, uh, rather than be with someone, he would tend to do bits. You know, he would entertain them because that was his default position. That's every comedian's default position. If they're laughing, they like me, you know. So uh, like most comedians, he would try to make people laugh. He had to really know someone uh, to be able to relax on a social level, you know, and just be with someone and have a conversation. Otherwise, especially with with strangers or with people he didn't know very well, he would do he would perform. And because he was extraordinarily talented, uh, it, nobody complained because you were seeing Charlie Chaplin do a live performance, which very few people got a chance to see by the time he was in the movies. Uh, but yeah, it, that. Uh, uh, <laughs> I like I love that story. I love that story because it indicates so much about 
his character and because he was extraordinarily shy and as with most shy people he when he became famous people approached him he didn't have to approach anybody so he was basically after he became famous uh he was standing on third base <laughs> he didn't have to do a lot in order to score you know it was the the, the 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 women would come to him and they would do all all the work really uh and all he had to do was be charlie chaplin and be charming or appear to be charming you know and and, and the rest was uh, uh much easier than it had been when he had to walk up to somebody introduce himself make conversation convince them he was charming uh convince them of this and convince them of that and he never really felt like that because he never really got his poverty uh got past the uh, uh the grinding poverty of his early days you know he was good looking he knew he was good looking he knew he had qualities that were attractive to women but on the other hand he was small uh and when you grow up poor that's your self-image uh it's an inculcated in you you know for a long long time uh probably always uh and so that was certainly the case with him uh and uh, for him money was armor money was armor it, it 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 was a protection against the vagaries of the world i love the baseball analogy it's well said um his marriage as you said earlier the stuff that happened earlier on was was nasty the marriage ended a few years later in a legendarily rancorous divorce gray's complaint accused chaplain of things both factual and fantastic seduction of a minor statutory rape perversion adultery soliciting abortions and murderous threats uh, later on, specify solicited urge demand that plaintiffs submit to perform and commit such acts and things for the gratification of defendants said abnormal, unnatural, perverted and degenerate sexual desires as to be too revolting, indecent and immoral to set forth in detail in this complaint. How did he deal with this kind of um, accusations being leveled against him? Uh, he gave her money. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, you, 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 that was that was the equivalent of the uh, the atomic bomb that uh, divorce complaint. Uh, so basically, he went to New York, hid out for a while, and then settled. He gave her uh, basically almost a million dollars, which in 1920, this is 1927, 28, is just just a humongous amount of money. Uh, and and some of it, of course, went to the lawyers. Some of it went to her mother. The rest she blew uh over time uh but you know you 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 he could not uh you didn't want that sort of, sort of stuff floating around in the ether indefinitely uh this also report focused an earlier memo from the chief investigator of the man act prosecution along the way attention had been paid to charlie chaplin king of tragedy a biography published in idaho in 1940 the quoted material focused on more than a dozen women chaplin had been involved with over the years that made a wild right turn by suggesting that despite voluminous evidence to the contrary, he might be homosexual. In passing, rumor has it that Chaplin is unnatural in his sexual relations, and it has been said that he is a homosexual. In your research, did you discover any of that? Was he gay? No, not even. I don't even think he ever thought about it. No, he was he was a, a raving heterosexual. So that's the thing. Sometimes some of these cases come out, and it can be a little bit difficult. Uh, this is another good good passage you had. You said propriety could be displaced by whimsy. Michael Powell's a dinner guest at Chaplin's house. And, you know, he's talking about things that are happening here. And, and just his, I guess, relationship. Chaplin and Dylan Thomas got in a conversation about the pervasive hostility of the press. And Chaplin asked Thomas for some advice. What would you say to them? Well, said Thomas, there's only one thing you could say. Tell them to go fuck their bloody eyelids. What was Chaplin's relationship with the press? Did he take Thomas's advice? No, 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 no. He, uh, he, he tried to avoid the press whenever possible. 
especially as as the uh, the tide turned against him in the 1940s. Uh, and but it it nothing he could have done would have made any difference because when I, I I wasn't even fully aware of this myself when I started to write the book, but the deeper I got into the research process and the more I read, the more clippings I read of the never ending tidal flow of negative disinformation, almost entirely erroneous and or completely fictional uh, that, that permeated the public press for years. And we're talking like 10 years uh, 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 of getting hammered on a weekly basis by people like Hedda Hopper and Westbrook Begler and Ed Sullivan and the Hearst papers and the Chicago Tribune papers and the Los Angeles Times syndicate. I mean, it was never ending. And gradually, gradually, uh, it poisoned uh, uh, the public well uh, about the subject of Charlie Chaplin. I love that you included this detail since I'm an avid tennis fan. Norman Lloyd and Chaplin played tennis three or four times a week, usually around five in the afternoon after the heat was fading. The cool California night was on the ascent. I know he played a very aggressive game, said Daniel Selznick, the son of David Selznick, who lived by Chaplin. The balls from Chaplin's court regularly landed in the east garden of our house. After we got 10 or 12 balls, I would take them back to his house. Una would come back to the door and thank me. Very aggressive tennis player. I love that aspect you included in there. Yeah, I was t- I was talking to Catherine Weiler a couple uh, a week or so ago, the daughter of William Weiler. And Weiler lived up the street uh, on Summit Drive from Chaplin, a couple doors down, a couple doors up. And uh, she told me about the Chaplin Weiler tennis tournaments uh, that went on for hours because both Chaplin and Weiler were small men, used to getting their way, alpha males, uh, and they played for blood. You know, neither one would capitulate, neither one would admit the other one was better. So the, the, the games would stretch into twilight, and uh, the, the kids loved watching. And eventually, one of them would win, and one of them would lose. And, and then the wives would come out, and Tally Weiler and Una would play, but neither one of them was athletic in the least, and they couldn't play tennis, and the kids would get bored and throw things at their mothers. But they, they loved watching their fathers play, because they, they saw aspects of their fathers they didn't see around the house, you know? Because Weiler around the house was much more casual than he was on the set uh, or on the tennis court and chaplain around the house when he wasn't working when he wasn't in his in his office writing or, or working on a music score or something uh was 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 fairly pleasant as well around the house but on the tennis court all all laughter ceased Love his competitive nature. Again, we're talking with Scott Iman. The book is called Charlie Chaplin versus America when art, sex, and politics collided. There's obviously a ton of fascinating information about him behind the scenes. But as far as the movies themselves, I'm sure you've watched them, researched them, read about them. What are your favorites of Chaplin? Modern Times, Gold Rush? Uh, I love The Kid. I love The Gold Rush. I love uh, City Lights. I love Modern Times. I like The Great Dictator. I am ambivalent about Monsieur Verdoux. I love Lyman. That's about it. I, I I don't make any claims at all for the last two pictures, King of New York and Conor Vermont. Yeah. What is it about Limelight that you love? Because I haven't seen it, but reading about it, you really paint a vivid portrait of it. Why it was important to Charlie? Uh, well, it's kind of, it's very autobiographical, directly autobiographical. It's about a comedian who's lost his audience. And he's not sure he can be funny anymore. He's not, he's not sure he has a place in the world anymore, you know? And it's also the story of Charlie and Una told in dramatic terms. Uh, a young girl, he rescues a young girl who falls in love with him. And he doesn't think it's going to work because of the age difference, you know. Uh, so it has all these autobiographical elements woven into this portrait of the Edwardian theater mm. that Chaplin grew up in. 
So it's a memory piece. And at the same time, it's it's very emotional and it's very directly uh, autobiographical. So it's got three or four really interesting strands uh, of meaning and emotion going throughout the picture. And it's funny. Yeah. It's <laughs> sad, too. You should see it. Yeah, and I definitely want to check it out. I remember the great uh, film critic Jeff Pavere wrote for the Toronto Star, my hometown paper. He wrote about City Lights, and he goes, the ending makes me cry. Right. And I, it's, it's such a beautiful ending when I watch City Lights. It's funny, but that, that ending is so beautiful when he actually sees her. One of the great, it's one of the great endings in all movies. Yeah, it, it, really, it really is. is. For somebody who's young, right? Millennials, somebody, let's say in their 20s, they say, well, Charlie Chaplin, why should I watch Charlie Chaplin? Why should I care about Charlie Chaplin? What would your answer be? Chaplin's foundational. Without Charlie Chaplin, there's no movie industry. Not the way it evolved. Because Chaplin transcended Hollywood in a way that nobody else had or nobody else could. Uh, uh, the Tramp was accepted as Japanese in Japan. He was accepted as German in Germany, French in France, uh, English in England. Actually, he basically was English. It was an English construct. Um, and he united all, fast, all, all quadrants of the audience in a way nobody else had or could have. Uh, suddenly, the movies became intellectually respectable. And uh, uh, everybody came to see Chaplin movies. Every, uh, the, the, the poor people came to see themselves reflected in the tramp. And rich people came to see the, uh, the strains of uh, melancholy and, uh, and grace that it coexisted with the rough house, the slapstick rough house. So uh, uh, he's, a, uh, he's a foundational figure. And he also, he assumed control of his career within months of starting in the movie business. Three or four months in the movie business, he was directing himself because he was impossible to work with unless he was directing himself, unless he had control. And he moved towards con complete control in a way that almost nobody did. He owned his own studio. He financed his own movies after 1918. He had owned 25% of a major releasing organization, United Artists. Uh, so he's important in an industrial sense and a, uh, a creative sense, as well as in a commercial sense. And I, there are very few people that check all those boxes in the history of the motion pictures. I mean, and also he personified the autocratic remote creator who does exactly as he wants to do. And, and the audience follows him. And, you know, you can point to Kubrick or, or Christopher Nolan in the modern era as, as similar. But uh, 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 Kubrick and Christopher Nolan didn't finance their own pictures. They, they took money. They took the money from the studios. But Chaplin believed that if you take money from the studio, you're going to have to get, get their notes. And you're going to have to listen to what they think. And Chaplin was never interested in what anybody else thought, except Charlie Chaplin. So he was, he was a complete autocrat when it came to his work. Uh, so for all those reasons, he's eternally relevant. That's really well said. And uh, the Tramp is such an iconic character. I'm a short man myself. And I remember one time this guy said to me, he goes, you always have so much stuff in your pockets. He says, yeah, he goes, you look like Charlie Chaplin walking around. Like, hey, that's a compliment, man. You're comparing me to Charlie Chaplin. The little Tramp. I'll grow a little mustache, put a hat on. It's good stuff. Scott Iman is the author, Charlie Chaplin versus America, When Art, Sex, and Politics Collided. It's a fabulous book. You should all read it. Scott, can't thank you enough for the time. I really appreciate it. Happy to do it. Anytime. Once again, thanks to Scott. Make sure you check out the book. I hope everybody has an incredible Thanksgiving. I saw people tweeting saying that how much me and Chris always talk about planes, trains, and automobiles. So those aren't pillows. Hopefully you'll get a chance to watch it. No bigger fan than Chris's mom, right? She's yep. she's her elf. favorite movie. Steve Martin, John Candy. No one did it better. Thanks so much for listening to Cinefile. I believe 300 episodes in the books, maybe 300 more. 
Next week, special guest, Lisa Cortez, Oscar-nominated, Emmy-winning producer, director of Little Richard, I'm Everything, and a whole lot of movies. I'm getting all the screeners emailed to me now, so we're talking at least four movies a week. Thanks for listening. I'll continue to dominate Samson, and I'll see you at the movies. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.